You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church is located in Camas, Washington. You can find out more about us at www.axecamas.org. Check out our other sermons and podcasts. You can find them on iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our website. This sermon was preached by Pastor David Robinson, who is the teaching pastor at Axe Church. We hope you enjoy the sermon, and we hope that the Lord blesses you through it. Abortion advocate Antonia Sr. writes this. It's not a baby. It's a fetus, you God squatties. The teenage me would have crowed at the pro-lifers. It's a woman's body, her choice. But then Antonia Sr. had her own baby, a little baby girl, and things for her became more complicated. She goes on to write, what seems increasingly clear to me is that in the absence of an objective definition, a fetus is a life by any subjective measure. My daughter was formed at conception, and all that turned that particular sperm meeting that particular egg into my darling personality-packed toddler took place at that moment. She is so unmistakably herself, her own person, forged in my womb, not by my mothering. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. But even with the blessing of the God-given miracle of this little baby girl, her daughter, and her clear understanding that life begins at conception, Antonia Sr. remains an advocate for abortion. And you might wonder to yourself, how could that be? What could justify her beliefs? What's more important to Antonio Sr. is what she describes as reproductive rights. And these are rights that she basically says she would die for. That's how important they are to her. She says this, the single biggest factor in women's liberation was our newly found ability to impose our will on biology. What that means is that in her mind, the freedom of women is largely dependent or mostly dependent on the ability of a woman to choose to kill what she calls a life. Kind of a chilling end to the article. She says this, the nearly 200,000 aborted babies in the UK each year are the lesser evil. No matter how you define life, or death for that matter, if you are willing to die for a cause, you must be prepared to kill for it too. You must be prepared to kill. What's wrong with us? We're so broken as people. It's easy to pass off ideas like those of Antonia Sr., as if they were rare, but they're not. And this is not some woman who's, you know, cackling in evil laughter. She really believes what she's saying, and she really believes that she's right about it. She's not, she loves her children. She thinks children are good. She just got broken. And how have we become so broken? We've been conformed to the broken world through lies that we've believed without really thinking them through. That's what's happened. Over the next few weeks, if the Lord wills, we're going to walk through uh, what most of us would consider to be uh, some difficult stuff, some difficult material. We're going to be studying some stuff that isn't as much fun as some other stuff that we could possibly study. We're going to talk about issues like abortion 
and sexual immorality and transgenderism. And I recommend that you don't miss any of these next few weeks. And the reason is, is because the ideas that, that help us to understand God's view on these issues, they build on each other. And they're complicated. They're not easy. Understanding difficult issues takes dedication. And it takes work. And I'm aware that some of this is going to hit us hard. It's going to hit us where we are. And some of you have had an abortion. If you want to hear my story on that issue, you can go back and look at the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday sermon from 2016. It's on axcamus.org. If you want to see that, uh, you can hear my story about abortion. Some of you are, right now, you're addicted to pornography. Or you're sleeping around. You're sleeping with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, whoever that you're not married to. Uh, You're cheating on your wife or on your husband. Um, You're identifying yourself as gay or transgender, bisexual, or something like that. You're walking through these kinds of issues. That's That's where you are. Now, this is what's important for you to understand before we get started. Jesus loves you. All of you. All of us. All of us sin. You need to know that first. Jesus loves you and I love you. First, everything the Bible teaches and everything that I want to say as we study through this is about God and the intense love that he has for you. That's it. You shouldn't take it in any other way. Even though truth may call out sin in our lives and it may hurt and may push up against us, it's calling us to transformation into good, into the good, into what God has for us. And listen, you are welcome here among the sinners in this room, which all of you are. Those who are thinking that you're not, you're sinning by thinking that. (laughs) And all these sinners need a savior just like you, if you're listening to this and you're struggling with any of this stuff. We all need a Savior just like you do. And let me just tell you, so that we can get this out of the way, I'm the chief of those sinners. There's nothing that you're doing or that you're struggling with or that you've done that's worse than the ways which I have been wicked and betrayed my God and my King. And he's forgiven even me. And he can do that for you. Jesus is not about condemnation, but life and transformation. That's what he's about. Listen to what Jesus said. For God so loved the world, you guys have probably heard this one before, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now listen to the next one. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what he wants. So if you're hearing something different, don't. Don't. But once we know Jesus... All of us, every single one of us, we're all sinners, and once we know Jesus and once we're saved, we're not supposed to stay in the same actions and the same thoughts that we have. We're called to be transformed. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, not by your own power, not by your own strength, but by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If there's a God, if you love him, if he saved you, the reasonable thing for you to do would be to present your body a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means whatever he's called you to do with this body, you ought to do. That's your reasonable service to the God who loves you and who saved you. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? 
by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're to be sacrificing our body, saying we're going to be obedient in whatever you call us to do and conformed, not conformed, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, this is important. Get this and plug it in. How do we get transformed? We start by renewing our mind, sacrificing our body, saying, will it be obedient to you, and renewing our mind, which has been what? Conformed to the world. How? Through the lies that Satan has put out there that people have been believing for as long as human beings have been walking around. Since the garden, when he said, did God really say that? No, you're going to be like God. Those lies have persisted throughout all of history and are still around now in old forms, new forms, same lies, same conforming to the world that happens. But we're to be saved and we're to be transformed. Now, if anyone at this church gives you the impression that they've got it all figured out or gives you the impression that they're better than you because they don't struggle with your particular sin, let me just tell you something. They're not representing Christ or his church, or this local expression of the body of Christ at Acts Church. They, they represent none of that. We're not better than anybody else. We are not better than anybody else. I know we say that, and we can say it like, oh, yes, I believe that, like we say a lot of things, but you need to understand that. If you're in your mind thinking that there are people out there who struggle with this or that or the other thing, sexual immorality, uh, they're a liar, they're a cheat, they're a stealer, and you think, well, but really I am a little bit better, that is not Christianity. That's something else. So if that's you, start to let God work on your heart on that. And if you get that impression from anybody, let's talk about it because we need to get and help that person to understand the sin that's in that. Looking down on people that God made in his own image and likeness in that way. All right, now that you know that and you know my heart, let's get serious about this stuff. Change and transformation comes through the power of the Holy Spirit and hard work with our hearts and minds. You don't transform easily. If you've been conformed and you gotta transform, that sounds like a painful process to me. You gotta ask yourself, why, why do we fight with each other? Why are these, all these people standing out in front of the Supreme Court, however often one of these big cases come down, or all the little fights we see on Facebook or social media or whatever? The reason that we fight is because we're all fighting for the fundamental truths of the universe. That's what's underlying all of this. Is there a God? You're right. Good answer. <laughs> Let's pray. No, no. All right. Is there a God? Who is he? Who are we? These are the questions that everyone's asking, and when they answer them, they tend to get pretty serious about it. And so we fight and we quarrel, and we get sideways with each other because we need to know the answers to those questions. And once we do, we need to stand for the answers to those questions. Now, we've been in a series called Rooted where we're going through uh, right now First Thessalonians. And we just uh, got through a part of the scripture where Paul has been dealing with the Thessalonians and talking to them. And we're going to get into a part of scripture where we talk about purity and holiness being set apart the way that God wants us to, that the scripture calls us to sacrifice, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, and it calls us to not be conformed but be transformed, just like those verses that we just read, except it gives it out in a little bit more of a practical way, telling us how to do that. 
Now, if you brought your Bible today, grab it out, bust it out. If you did not bring it or do not have one, there should be one in one of the chairs in front of you in those little seat pockets. If you don't have one at home, take one of those with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, Glenn, I think there's a children's Bible with the coloring pages. Somewhere back there, someone will get you some crayons and a snack. You'll be okay. All right. We'll also have the scripture on the screens if you'd rather do it that way. Let's get into 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 3. We're starting in verse 9. Okay? For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Remember, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were concerned. They were, they were broken over what was happening to the Thessalonian believers who were up in Thessalonica where they weren't. And these Thessalonian believers were undergoing persecution, so they were concerned. But then they found out that they had stood strong, and so they were just overjoyed. They were rejoicing. They were thanking God for the Thessalonians. That's where they were at. Okay, But it doesn't end there for Paul. You've been experiencing persecution. We're glad that you stayed strong. But then he kind of wants to keep moving forward. So we read in the next verse, in verse 10, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. And perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now, this is big. I want you, we gotta underline perfect there, okay? Circle it, do whatever you do in your Bible, highlighter, smiley face, emoji, I don't know. Whatever you put next to stuff that you wanna remember, perfect, put it there. Here's the deal, listen. If your faith was perfected, if your faith was perfected, your actions would be perfect. You know that? If your faith was perfect, your actions would be perfect. If you had a complete and perfect faith in God, you would always do what you ought to do in complete obedience. Always. You would always do it. Why? Our sin, our mistakes, the things that cause us guilt and shame, the things that, uh, that, that we struggle with and so on, they may be due to many things, including our own wicked will sometimes and, and sowing to the flesh rather than the spirit. But here's something that's always present, always, always, always is present. It will always include a lack of faith. Because if we truly believed, if, we truly, if our faith was truly perfected, we truly believe what we say we believe, we simply would not sin. Now, how do I know that? We all have faith in gravity, right? We all have faith in gravity. How do you know? Because every time you climb up that ladder and you get towards that top step and it shakes a little bit, you grab that thing, right? Like it was, why is that? Why is that? Because you have faith in gravity. Because you know that if you're on the top of that ladder and then suddenly you're not on the top of that ladder, it's going to hurt. You know that, right? You have faith in it. Look, you can't see gravity, but you believe. Can I get a witness? Right? You have faith in gravity. Gravity can really hurt if you don't respect it, if you don't believe it, if you don't have faith in it. And our faith in gravity is really strong, okay? Okay? Ask my dad about his faith in gravity. He doesn't like being in high places. He'll tell you all about it. So he'd send me up when I was a kid. <laughs> Rickety ladders, the top of this thing, I think I'm going to die. And it's, a, it's fine. Just keep dying. I didn't die. That's the end of the story. All right. I would say our faith in gravity nears perfection. We have almost perfect faith. Our faith has been perfected in gravity. 
Interesting. We don't play around with it, but we do play around with sin sometimes, which tells me something, that we don't have perfect faith. Because if we had perfect faith in God and what he has told us about sin, about how it affects him, about how it affects you, about how it affects others, about the consequences for it, about the cross that Christ suffered because of it, if our faith was perfect in those things, we would not walk in sin. We wouldn't do it, okay? Because as surely as falling off that ladder is going to hurt, sin is going to hurt. God says so. You may not be able to see it like you can't see gravity. I don't really see how this sin is going to cause this. I don't see how this sin is going to cause that. But it will hurt, right? Now, because our faith is not perfected, we're still struggling with some things in life. Paul's saying, I want to perfect your faith. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, tells the Thessalonians he wants to perfect their faith. He's also saying he wants to perfect them, right? Because perfect faith, perfect person. That's the way that it would work. So with that in mind, what is the scripture going to say? It says this, verses 11 through 13. Now Mary, God and Father himself, and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. I mean, not just Christians, not just people who live in the same town as me, not people who like the same things as me, not just people who put the same kinds of posts on Facebook as me. No, to all. To all. That's big. Just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Okay. They want to go to them, they say. They want to go to them. Why? They want the Lord, the Lord, to increase and make the Thessalonians' love abound towards each other and towards everyone else. That's what they want to see. Why? Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy already know. They already said, we're already working on this. We're already loving. You've seen our love. We're already working through this process to get more and more love. And why? Because what does love do? Because it says that it will establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does Paul want to perfect their faith? By the Lord Jesus Christ increasing their love. Increasing their love is going to help perfect their faith. Because if they're loving each other, if they're loving everyone else, they're not going to walk in sin, right? If you're loving, if you're loving everyone around you and everyone, you're not going to walk in sin. But you'll walk in holiness and perfection. He's making points, right? The way that, that the letters work is that he's walking through and he's making points. Here's the linear line of teaching. We want to see your faith perfected. Perfected faith is going to mean perfected action. That's implied. Love will show perfected faith and perfected action. Okay, now the Thessalonians have this. I want your faith to be perfect. If your faith can get perfect, you're going to have holiness. Love equals holiness. So love will help perfect your faith. That's the argument that he's working. So where does the Thessalonians' love need to increase? That's what he's going to get to. Next section, four. Start with verses one and two. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort. They really want this to happen, okay? This isn't like, hey, guys, would you mind if you just, you know, how we are with people because we don't want to be overbearing, right? Hey, would you just mind if you just, no. We urge, we exhort, 
We want to see you do this thing. In the Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, he's sort of setting them up here. He's saying, listen, I've just told you about perfection of faith and love and how that's going to work, and now I'm saying, okay, I want you to abound more and more because we're now going to talk about the commandments that we talked to you about that are going to help you learn how to love. He's sort of winding up because he's about to throw a pitch. He's about to throw a pitch, and he didn't throw it over the plate. He's throwing at their head, coming inside, okay? And he knows that, so he's sort of set them up, sort of set them up. And now the pitch is going to be thrown. Let's read verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay. Now you guys are like, well, yeah, people say that in church all the time. Listen, this pitch would have hit them hard. Because the Thessalonians were around a bunch of people. They lived in a place where sexual morality was rampant, where sex was actually worshipped. Okay, that's what they were living with. And so when they heard it, they were like, oh, woo, we don't want to talk about sexual morality, which, by the way, is probably how some of you feel right now. And I, frankly, I feel that way too. I'd rather talk about something else, right? Because this is a big issue. We tend to worship sex in the same way that they did, and yet the Lord is saying here he's, he thinks it's necessary to talk to the Thessalonians about this problem. And because it's in here, it means it's necessary to talk to us about it too. The word says to possess your own vessel with sanctification and honor. Your body, right? Possess your body in sanctification and honor. Now, why does God need to remind them to honor their bodies? What's that about, right? Because most of us think that, oh, we think the body's a good thing. We want to take care of it and so on. But there were those then, and there still are now, who looked at the body and, in fact, all physical matter as evil. It's stuff, all the stuff was kind of part of the world that was kind of evil. So there was like the spiritual, that was the good stuff. And then there was the body and the other stuff that was evil. And because the body was unspiritual and evil, who cares what you did with it? This was prevalent. Who cares what I do with my body? What difference does it make if I'm going to the prostitutes and I'm you know, doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing the other thing? Who cares what I'm doing? Because my body is evil anyway. The only thing that matters is my spiritual self, and that's really not connected to my body. And God is pushing back on this. Lord willing, we'll get more into that philosophy over the next couple weeks. But God is pushing back, saying, no, no, no. Your body should be sanctified and honored. Why? Because he made you. Because he made it. Because he said it was very good. Hmm, maybe it's not pure evil and horrible. But even some Christians started following this mindset. And yet, if God made the body, if you're to be redeemed, you must have had been deemed at some point. Right? Chew on that. All right. Sanctified means holy and free from sin. Okay? He's saying you need to hold your body in sanctification and honor. That's, that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
That's the real deal. And trust me, this was, this was new news to these Gentile believers who would come in. This was new news. This was not an easy thing for them to buy into. It goes on. Verse 6 says this. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. That is interesting. God is describing sexual immorality as taking advantage of and defrauding your brother. Sexual immorality is taking advantage of other people. It's defrauding other people. That's what sexual immorality is. That's, that's where the rub is on this. The, the, the sin is causing you to take advantage of and defraud other people. And some of you are thinking, how is that possible? Isn't it victimless? We're going to press more into that next week, Lord willing. So you need to come back. Last little section for today, 7 and 8. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. He who rejects this does not reject man, but God. That's who's being rejected, God. God called us to live in purity, in holiness. That's what he called us to do. For some people, this is the way they interpret that. God called us to not have any fun, right? God called us to be prudish, right? Lights off. I'm not going to go the whole thing. <laughs> Last time some of you got offended, I don't want any emails, but if you do get offended, my email is glenn at axcamus.org. <laughs> Certainly our culture is going to tell you, right? Certainly our culture is going to tell you that when God says you should be holy and pure, that God means you shouldn't have any fun, which I think is a really interesting thing to level against the God who invented sex. He created sex, and we're saying that if you do sex God's way, it's no fun and all the rest of that. Let me just tell you, it is good. He created sex. He created good. He has a design for it. Not everybody agrees with that design for a lot of reasons, some of which are not their fault, some of which have to do with the way they've, they've been conformed by the world, some of which have to do with a million other things. But God does have a design, and we've got to trust him. That's where the whole sacrificing Presenting our bodies as sacrifice comes in. Sometimes we have to sacrifice that which we want or which we think we want or which we desire in order to honor God because he knows what's best. Now, we're going to dig deeper again, Lord willing, next week in that. Okay? But that last sentence is so big. He who rejects this isn't rejecting man. It's rejecting God. There's a therefore in that sentence, right? Some of you know that I was, I'm a lawyer. And if you... You guys, do you guys know why blood-sucking mosquitoes don't bite lawyers? Professional courtesy. Um. <laughs> I really don't get bitten by them very often, so I don't know. Um, my wife gets it a lot. So, Seriously, though, as a lawyer, when I get to the therefore, that means I'm bringing my argument together. That means I'm bringing what I'm trying to say together into one thing. Okay? And so when they say, therefore, he who rejects this rejects God, he's bringing an argument together. So let's roll back through the argument really quick. 
Number one, the commandments about sexual immorality are from the Lord Jesus. You'll find this in verse 4, 2 that we just read. Next, this is the will of God. Okay, sexual morality, abstaining from sexual immorality is the will of God. Verse 4, 3, if you want to go back and look at it. The Gentiles are sexually immoral immoral because they do not know God. Verse 5, God called us into holiness, not uncleanness. Verse 7, therefore, rejecting the call, the will of God, by not abstaining from sexual immorality, is rejecting God. That's the therefore. That's an argument he's built for you. This is about God and what he says and what he wills and what he's commanded. If you reject it, you are not rejecting me, the messenger. You're not rejecting the Bible. You're not rejecting. You're rejecting God straight up. And it makes sense because he's created things the way that he wants them to work. Now, it's, it's big for you to get that. So stick that in your heart and your mind. If you reject God's plan and design for sexual morality, if you will not abstain from sexual immorality, you are rejecting God. Now, what does that sound like? Sin. Right? Rejecting God is sin. Ultimately, rejecting God and not perfecting faith are both going to always be there whenever there's sin. So why? why? Why do those who don't know God walk in sexual immorality. He says the Gentiles, that's just everybody who's not a Jew, right? And in this case, he's really talking about everybody who doesn't know the Lord. Why do they walk in sexual immorality? The answer to the question, for those of you who like things to be really simple, is not simple. It goes far beyond lust and self-control and the kinds of things that we try, well, that person just doesn't have self-control. and uh, Yeah, okay. It's far more complicated than that. The reason is, as we said earlier, that we've been conformed to this world We've believed a lie about God and who he is. And we've believed a lie about ourselves and who we are. That's why. Ultimately, what drives us to sexual immoral behavior and all immoral behavior are lies that we believed about God and who he is and us and who we are. That's it. Now we're going to talk about a little bit of that. We're going to get into some dualisms dualisms. Now I know I say something with ism at the end of it, and some of you are like, isms, nap time. Dad. I know. I know. That's where it is. Listen, stay with me, okay? Dualisms. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? You believe what you believe because the worldview that you have was largely thrust upon you by so many others. Like Old philosophers like Plato, not the stuff that you, my old law partner used to like to smell it, Plato. He'd get it out and just, he'd just sit there and smell it while his kids are playing with Plato. He's a weirdo. I don't know. He's a judge now. Anyway. Freak. Anyway. Plato with a T, okay? Plato, Descartes, these guys and their ideas have had a lot to do with forming that worldview. It hasn't just been, as some people like to think, oh, it's MTV and sitcoms and gangster rap, glamour rock, cable news, Facebook. Look, it's really not those things as much. What those things are doing, the words and actions of those people and institutions that are pushing all of this stuff, they're just repeating old lies in newer forms. That's all they're doing, okay? 
They didn't come up with this stuff. It's been thrust on them like it's being thrust on you, and they're just acting it out. Okay? These ideas are old and serious. Okay? And the fact is, is that we have often come to believe in a number of dualisms. And dualisms are just basically things that are separated that aren't necessarily separate. That's all they really are, a dualism. Okay, a dualism. So let's talk about some different dualisms. The fact value dualism is one. Fact value dualism. Secular sacred dualism. And mind-body dualism. These three combine to answer the reason why we act in so many ways, but especially when it comes to issues like abortion and sexual immorality and transgenderism and identity issues and things like that. These three work together to put us in a position not only to, to buy into things that are evil, but to not have the, the gumption, the ability, or the understanding to actually fight against those things and help people who are suffering with them. That's what these things do. So let's walk through it, okay? Because every one of these dualisms is a vicious lie that leads to real evil. Ideas have consequences, right? The fact-value dichotomy, simple. There's two kinds of truth. That's what the fact-value dichotomy says. There's, there's a big T truth. That's stuff like science and the things in the physical world, like this is big T truth here. This music stand, Right? Things we can prove with our five senses, those are big T truth. And for the fact value dualist, these are the only real, the only real truth. They're objectively true no matter what anybody believes. Big T, big T truth, science. Then there are little T truths. Little T truths are things like whether God exists, things like whether justice or love exist. Things like whether there's really such a thing as morality. Things like religion and other stuff like that. Those are all little t-truths for the fact-value dualist. That's what they are. Okay, And they would describe those kinds of truths as subjective. They're up to you. Whatever you want to believe, you can believe because they're not really true. right? They're just true for you or false for you. You do you. Right? That's true for you, but it's not true for me. Fact, value, dualism. That's what that is. It's been going on forever. You think it's new. It's not new. This is not a 20th, 21st century invention. Fact, value, dualism has been going on. The divide of truth into separate spheres of existence has been going on for a long time. A long, long, long time. Now, if you want to think that love is nothing more than the chemical firing of neurons in a human body, fine. For the fact value dualists, think that. Or if you want to think that love is something much more special and significant than that, fine. For the fact value dualist, believe that. It's for you. Good job. Whatever you want to believe. But if you believe that love is something real and part of the nature of a real God, and you think that those facts are true regardless of what anybody else thinks about it, if that's what you think, you're an enemy of a fact-value dualist. You become their enemy. As soon as you break the spell on fact-value dualism, you're an enemy, somebody to be dealt with. C.S. Lewis calls Christians fighters. He says it's a fighting religion. He's not talking about you know, this kind of thing. 
That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, Christ followers are fighters because we reject fact value dualism. That's essentially what he's saying. Look, we say there really is a God. There really is right and wrong. There really is love and justice and morality. And when we do that, we're destroying fact value dualism. We're saying that all those things are true, whether people believe them or not. You can't just do you. You can do you, but you're going against reality. That's like you doing you by saying there's no gravity and just walking off the end of a building. You do you, but there's going to be a consequence, right? That's what's going to happen. That's why Christians have been persecuted. I want you to think about this. Why have Christians been persecuted? Why did the Romans burn these Christians and throw them to the lions and so on? Because Rome was fact-value dualism. I mean, if you really look at it, believe whatever you want. Worship any God you want. Just don't mess with the way the state does business, which was evil. And don't mess with anybody else's religion. Just do the coexist thing, right? And I'm all for coexisting, by the way. You should not use violence or harshness or anything but love to engage with your neighbors whether they believe something different than you or not, okay? So I'm all for coexisting, but that's not the kind of coexisting the Romans were looking for. They were looking for the kind of coexisting that never came up against their power. And Christians weren't like that because they believed that what they believed was true regardless of what anybody else believed and that the other things that people believed were wrong and there was such a thing as right and wrong and the state had obligations just like everyone else to God. Did not work out well. That's why we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King tomorrow, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And you can contemplate from what you've learned today that the reason that the state and the institutions of racism fought against him is because he was destructive to fact-value dualism. Because his ideas were Christian ideas. He is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He was a fighter who said that all men really were created equal. Not, I have this private idea inside my mind that all men were created equal, but you do you. I'll just go over here and stay out of your way because you need to be able to do you and I need to be able to do me. No, no. All men really were created equal is what he said. And that the state had an obligation before a real God that there was a power above the state that said what ought to happen. And he stood strong and he fought for that and went to jail and eventually was murdered because he came up against those who want that fact value dualism. He wouldn't have it. He wouldn't have it. Because he said they were really wrong and he was really right and righteously so. He was really right. They were really wrong. These are really objective truths. And when you destroy, when you're destructive to the fact-value dualism, it will always cause conflict. Always. Always. Because the whole point of fact-value dualism is to not have conflict. I get to say what's really, really true, and then what's just true in your mind. And as long as we're all good with that, we're going to get along just fine. As soon as you break out of that, you're going to have a problem. Right? But we reject that. We reject fact-value dualism. We refuse to pretend like morality and God and the other things which are the most important things to human lives in this universe are just simply subjective ideas rolling around in the minds of certain people 
They're just meaningless and personal. They don't mean anything. Other people may want us to believe that. It's not going to happen. This really goes into the next dualism, which is the secular state dualism. Secular state dualism. Secular state dualism is the dualism that says that the things of God, things of truth, things about morality and justice and whatever really don't belong in the public square, but particularly the things of God and particularly the things of Jesus don't belong in the public square. You can believe all you want in God and morality. Just do that at home. Okay? Do it at home. Don't do it in the public square. Don't go out and try to tell other people those things are true. Hold it for yourself. See how it, how it piggybacks off fact-value dualism, secular state dualism. And there's really two aspects to secular state. The one is keep it at home and keep it yourself. The other is one that Christians buy into. It makes us feel like we can only worship God if we're sitting here in this building singing a song. That's another way that sec- sacred secular, secular sacred dualism affects us. That worship of God and all these things are really things that happen inside a church, and that's the only place they happen. But that's not true. It's true that we can have a great time worshiping God here in this building. It's great. And singing songs is one way to worship God. But we can worship God through our work, whatever our vocation, whatever our calling is. We should be worshiping God through our work. And it does not have to be that you're a missionary. We have some families of missionary about to go to the Philippines. That's awesome. That's great. But they're not the only ones who can worship God through their work. All of you can in whatever you're doing. We can worship God through our hobbies. We can worship God through watching a movie. We can worship God by sitting quietly with our children or our spouse. In everything that we do, we ought to be worshiping God. But if we have this sacred, sacred secular dichotomy, it's kind of we pigeonhole our lives, right? We kind of get sideways on that. We think we can do God stuff here at church, maybe some of it at home in a certain way, but certainly not at work, right? Certainly not when we're out with the guys. They don't want to hear about that. Or the girls, right? We keep our understanding of morality in our houses and in our church, and then, of course, we won't engage the world, which keeps Satan pretty happy. Many people hide behind secular, sacred dualism. Believers. They don't speak or fight. They don't love others fully. Because listen, if you want to love other people fully, you have to, in love, not as a jerk, but in love, speak the truth to them, whatever that is. Whatever that is, you've got to speak the truth to them in love. You can't do that if you believe that you're not allowed to speak outside of your home or outside of this building. When I was in law school and I went to a Christian law school, That is not an oxymoron. There really is such a thing. It's a Christian law school. I remember I I had a class and we had some attorneys from town come in. And they were telling us that, you know, just talking through about, they were Christians. They they identified themselves as Christ followers, as Christians. They came into the class, we're Christian lawyers. Okay, great. Let's, it's good. I'm going to be one of those. Let's talk about it. And they started talking about their job and they started talking about things like when they would help, when they take on clients to help uh, a young woman get an abortion, go to court to help a young woman get an abortion. And I don't remember if it was me or somebody else, it was probably me, who said, how do you reconcile that with your faith? How do you reconcile going and, ma- and clearing the path for someone to get an abortion? You're, they, they said, some of these cases, they're just things they did not agree with. 
How do you reconcile that with your faith? And their response was basically sacred secular dualism. Just straight up. That's work. What are you talking about? At home and at my church, I do these things. That's at, that's at work. In other words, I can do whatever I want at work because that's in the secular sphere and the sacred doesn't touch it. I can pigeonhole my life over here and not over here. I remember thinking, oh, that's not going to be me because if that's how it is, I'm out of here right now. Plus, it's really hard and I'd like to leave. No, it was really hard. But that was the mindset. That's work. Yeah, I, I, at church, I'll get up and give a sermon about how I believe that abortion is killing a baby. But at work, I'll go help them kill the baby. Because that's church, and this is work. And I know we're all like, oh my gosh, that's so bad. And yet, how many of us do it? How many of us don't take God with us to work? Because, of course, that's work. We're not in our house, we're not in the church. I'm not saying bring your guitar in and lead everybody in worship <laughs> at work. I mean, if you have that skill set, make it happen, right? You do you. But I'm saying you can worship God in everything that you do, and you can make those decisions the right way. We can worship God powerfully through whatever is going on in our lives. Okay. The last dualism is mind-body dualism. I'm going to try to walk through this as quick as I can. This dualism says that the mind and the body are totally separate. They are not a united whole. They're not part of a united whole. This is the dualism. Listen carefully. This is the dualism that is allowed for all kinds of sexual immorality and other kinds of sin. And murder and genocide and slavery and a bunch of other things like that. It's the most responsible. This dualism is the most responsible for those things. That drives those actions. If we believe that the mind is the real self and the body is just a bunch of cells, we can make ourselves believe all kinds of things about the value of any particular human being based on what we want to define as personhood. The fact is that these ideas have consequences, real consequences. These dualisms cause real sin and real pain and real suffering to real people. They're not just ideas that we talk about. These aren't just philosophies that we sit around and discuss for fun. They're ideas that drive our actions and the actions of our neighbors, and they're ideas that end up in death and destruction. So what if abortion ends a life? Mary Elizabeth Williams titled her article in Salon Magazine. So what if abortion lends life? This is what she says. I believe that life starts at conception. Throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. When we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand, dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. She goes on to describe her thoughts about personhood, and you need to, you need to understand the mind-body dualism that exists here. Mind is the real person. We decide when mind is good enough, 
right? When mind is enough, when there's enough of it, when it's good enough, and when it actually turns person from just a body into a person. So this is what she says about personhood of a baby that's in her mother. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides, okay? Not having the same rights because it's not a full person is what she's saying. Human life, but not a full person. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her, always. What is, why is the mother a person and the baby is not a person? In, in the mind of Mary Elizabeth Williams, it's because the mother's autonomous. That's what makes her a self, mind, body, dualism. She's a mind, she's a self. Baby's just a body at this point, and the way she makes the distinction is because the baby is not autonomous. Now, I just grabbed, I was on Microsoft Word, and I just clicked on the thing and put synonyms, right? From the thesaurus, it's right there. Synonyms for the word autonomous. Here's a couple words that came up. Independent, self-sufficient. Now, if a person needs to be independent and self-sufficient in order to be a person that has the right to live, no one would be a person until they were like 20. Some of you are like, yeah, my, my son is still in the basement on Reddit, eating my food. Not independent or self-sufficient. Right? So honestly, though, if that's what it takes, if autonomy, which is independence and self-sufficiency, is what it takes to be a person, to be a self, to be a mind and not just a body, then we're not just talking about babies in the womb, are we? You ever met an independent, self-sufficient infant? I was. I had to get a job. It was, <laughs> parents were rough. No. They're dumb, man. Have you seen, uh, you've seen babies, right? <laughs> Pretend like that's rude or something. They're, they are. They don't talk or anything. Anyway, they're beautiful and wonderful, obviously. But they're not self-sufficient or independent. This is what mind-body dualism leads to. It's these kinds of ideas. She ends the body, and she ends the article with these words. A little chilling. The fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. We should sacrifice these babies if that's what the mother wants because the mother is more independent and self-sufficient than her baby. They are not even arguing anymore. They're not even arguing anymore with the fact that these are babies. Just so you know, for those of you who grew up in the 80s, moral majority, going on the marches and all that kind of stuff, and it was like, it's a fetus, it's a baby, it's, you know, a clump of cells. No, it's a real human. That argument's over. Just so you know. There are basically no scientists who, who maintain the old fetus is not a baby talk. That's over. That's been over for a long time. They don't want to tell you that it's over because they like that. Why? Because when they had that, they were talking about science and they thought we were talking about religion. Fact, value, right? Guess what's happened? Whoop! Now believers and those, even unbelievers who understand morality, are the ones talking about facts because the science is now on the side that says conception, spark, life, and the scientists all agree with that. And on the other side, what are they talking about? Values. It's totally switched. Autonomy, self versus body, 
These are all up in the sphere of values in the fact-value dichotomy. We have literally gone from them saying, look, we don't want your religious stuff in here. You're talking about values. We're talking about scientific facts. We don't know if it's a baby or not, just a clump of cells. And then when they were wrong and science said that's not the case, they totally switched. They moved the goalposts. They switched the whole thing around. And now they're talking about values while we're talking about scientific facts. You think that they might be trying to protect something regardless of whether it makes sense? Because I know none of us ever justify anything, right? We know exactly what it's like because we do it too. But it's clearly what they're doing. They're not arguing about scientific facts anymore. They're just arguing that somebody's not a person unless fill in the blank. In the case of Mary Elizabeth Williams, it's autonomy. In the case of some other people, it's, there's all these little things that they have, certain levels of, of autonomy, certain levels of intelligence, certain levels of whatever. What ha- do you see where it leads? What happens when it's, if you're not this height or this weight or don't have this IQ or this much money or didn't come from this family or were born in this place, you're not a person. If you can start drawing that line wherever you want to on your philosophical values that of course are yours and they're subjective and they're your own, how do you think we've had every genocide that's ever happened? Including this one, killing babies. We start drawing the line in personhood theory, which the Supreme Court did in 1973. And if you want to read that, that case, you can read it right there. The, the baby inside the womb is not a person. If they were a person, they would be entitled to the rights of the 14th Amendment. They couldn't be deprived of life without due process of law. But they're not a person. Well, why aren't they a person? Because we said so. you got to understand what that leads to. It leads to a culture of death. It leads to a culture of death. These dualisms are real, and they are a wicked evil. They are a wicked evil. Do not believe them. Do not believe them. They are lies that lead to death. I'm telling you. Fact, value, dualism, if we believe it, will cause us to treat our faith like it's something less than real truth, like it's something we do to make ourselves feel better, that somehow Jesus died on a cross so that we could feel a little bit better on a Sunday morning instead of that he died on the cross and rose again as the central event, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection being the central event that this universe turns on, that it's real, that's more real than anything. Instead of believing that, if we buy into fact-value dichotomy, it's just going to be our personal little thing, which means it has no power. It's not really real. Secular, sacred dualism, if we believe it, will make us fear bringing real truth into the public square. It means we won't be able to love people because we'll be keeping truth from them because we've bought into the idea that truth that has something to do with God or morality or whatever shouldn't be out there. Mind-body dualism, if we believe it, will help us justify the killing of the most vulnerable people on this planet. It always has, and as long as we believe it, it always will. People were created in the image and likeness of God. People are more than bodies, but they are integrated body, soul, spirit, human beings. Understand that. That's who you are. You are not just a body. You are not just a mind. You are not just a soul. You're all of those things. Body, soul, spirit. So many of us bought these lies, and God's pushing back on us like he's pushing back on the Thessalonians. He's saying, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These are are things that exist in your mind. These dualisms, secular, sacred dualism. 
right? Fact, value, dualism, mind-body dualism. These are philosophies that exist in your mind that shape and frame. It's like a pair of glasses that you put on that frame how you see the world. You got to take those glasses off and rub them off or break them and get some new ones if you want to transform your mind. Listen, don't be confused about morality. Don't be apathetic. Be confident and fight for what's right, but do so with compassion and love, thinking of others as better than yourself, having grace for others. Jesus loves every mother and father, and I know we talked about abortion a lot today. Every mother and father that have ever made the decision to have an abortion, Jesus loves them. Just like with these Thessalonians, he wants every one of them to be saved. Every one of us that's, that's been in that situation, every one of us that's engaged in sexual immorality, every one of us that's lied or cheated or defrauded our neighbor in any way, all of us need the same thing. We need the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come into the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God is here for you today to forgive you, to save you. He was there for me in the middle of my wickedness and pain and shame. He was there. And he made me new and alive in him. All the lies that I have believed have come tumbling down. And God is perfecting my faith as he will yours. Perfecting me as he will you. So one day we are transformed, fully perfected, glorified in him. Perfected body, perfected soul, perfected spirit. Human beings who get to be with him forever because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. Don't suffer in shame anymore. If there's stuff you heard today that just is, is bringing you shame, don't suffer in shame. That is not what God wants. That's not what the, the cross was about, getting rid of that shame. Don't take that power away from the cross. Instead, give it to Jesus. Leave it at the cross. God loves you. We love you. Believe on him and give your life to him today if you have not done that. Experience the joy and forgiveness and grace and peace that come with God. Listen, finish up here. Broken ideas lead to sin and broken people. Okay? Broken ideas lead to sin and broken people. But God is a savior and redeemer of the broken. He will save and redeem you if you'll fall on him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that you've done for us, Lord. Lord, we're sorry. We ask for forgiveness for the sin that we've committed, and we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, don't let one person walk out of this place today in shame, but let all of that be left at the cross and let the love that you have for them be felt through us, to them, from you. That they know that you love them. God, I love you. And yet I have been a wicked man. I've committed all manner of wickedness, believing all manner of lies, walking in all manner of untruth, and yet you've forgiven me. It's beyond what I can understand. Lord, I just pray for our church, for the people that you've called to this place and this local body, that they would be together as one. They would abound more and more in love for one another, that they would not defraud each other, 
They would not take advantage of one another, but rather that they would truly be united to one another in faith. And Lord, I just pray you would perfect our faith. That we would believe in you more than we believe in gravity. That we would want to live for you. God, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't believed on your name and received salvation, Lord. If there's those who haven't been through baptism yet and want to talk to us about that, I pray you give them the strength and the the courage to do that, Lord. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, It really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or through SoundCloud so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.